Welcome to another inaugural episode between uh, us three, uh, Alexander Schmidt, Miss uh, Sarah Miller, and Mr. Wesley Shanson. This time around, this first episode is going to be on Shakespeare. It's going to be our Shakespearean summer that's probably going to go well on through the summer. And we have decided just now to call it Conversations at the Old Globe. And so uh, before we get too far into this, I should welcome Miss Sarah Miller and Mr. Wes Chance, and thank you for taking this new project on. It's a pleasure. Welcome to you. Thank you. Greetings. 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 And just so that everybody can know, so the basic idea behind this project is that we are going to use Bloom's taxonomy of Shakespeare's plays, and maybe we'll be able to discuss how they've been grouped and the famous groupings and where people differ, because I actually saw a difference uh, recently in a play I saw um, where one play was called a problem play that's not listed as a problem play in Bloom. But um, uh, so we're going through these works sort of chronologically and thematically according to this um, work on Shakespeare by Harold Bloom. And we're trying to get through um, all of them eventually. And the reason why we first, uh, or why we picked Shakespeare was, I believe uh, it came from you, Sarah. The first thought was you were saying you wanted to do something after doing Harry Potter a little more in line with the history of Western thoughts, um, you know, title and purpose. And we were all talking about summer projects and maybe doing some language things, maybe Greek or Latin. And you suggested Shakespeare and you had just directed us, or not directed, but really counseled on a, or consulted on a Shakespeare play. You said you've taught almost half of Shakespeare's plays. And so I guess I'm just excited to welcome you and to another uh, set of texts that you have a lot of experience with, and um, also to ask for you to sort of introduce Shakespeare to us as well. Sure. Um, yeah. I love Shakespeare. I think when I was, uh, maybe it's my 14th birthday, um, my mom bought me the Arden Shakespeare Collected Works. And it's a book I've taken with me to college and to Chicago and then DC. It's basically lived with me everywhere. Um, it's really heavy, so that's saying something. Um, and, you know, I'm sitting here in my apartment looking at a Shakespeare board game and a Shakespeare insult book. It's one of those things that uh, my, like, non-St. John's friends kind of associate me with. So, yeah, um, I figured maybe we could do, like, in the first few installments, we could do, like, a little bit about his biography. Um, uh, and just since this is the first of our conversations. Maybe I'll just say a little bit about um, the first few years of, of his life, like what we know of his his young and young adult life. Um, and then um, as we get further into his, his early works, we can um, kind of learn more about his biography as we go. That's, that's cool, y'all. Definitely. Always interesting to hear a little bit of the context for these things. Sounds great. So um, Shakespeare was born in Stratford-upon-Avon in 1564. Um, it's, now it's 
probably like an hour, maybe a little bit further of a train ride from London. But obviously, you know, over 400 years ago, it wasn't, it was the country, right? It was a small little town, um, you know, a day's ride away to London. Um, I think Wes was saying in the pre-show, like there's so much about Shakespeare that's apocryphal um, and that is um, up for debate, right? Or, and, and, you know, literary scholars spend so much time, you know, disagreeing about little details of the biography. So I think for this, we'll just stick to what we do know um, and not speculate on the things that we, we aren't sure about. But most of what I know comes from a few biographies about Shakespeare. Um, there's a, a really great book about Shakespeare's London by, I think, Peter Aykroyd. Um, but you know, the Folger Shakespeare Library um, is a place where I spent a, quite a bit of time when I lived in D.C. And um, they have like what I think is a, a fairly preeminent collection worth of, of materials, um, both about the writer and about his works. Um, and it's probably the best place to study um, stateside about um, about William Shakespeare. So we know that he was born in 1564 because there is a record of his baptism. So very likely he was born um, pretty, uh, he was baptized pretty quickly after being born. This was in a time when um, the belief was, you know, unbaptized infants would, um, if they died, go to limbo and not to heaven um, until they were baptized. So um, there's a record of his baptism in 1564 in late April. Um, and uh, so the assumption is he was born pretty, um, pretty early in the month of April or maybe even the middle of April. Um, his, his birthday is celebrated um, on April 23rd, which is coincidentally the day he died as well in 1616. Um, so it's possible those two dates are conflated, but it doesn't really matter. He was born in April of 1564. Um, really, his life centers around Stratford for the young, for the early uh, part of his life, and then um, London. Um, he was the son of, I, I guess, what I would call middle class uh, parents. His father was a a leather worker um, and a prosperous businessman who um, was engaged in civil service. He basically was the town mayor. I think they called it bailiff back then, um, but that it wasn't like somebody who worked in a prison. He was um, in uh, public service in the small town until um, Shakespeare was, um, uh, you know, in his childhood, 10, 12 or so, um, he, he stepped away from public life, um, his father did, and there's some speculation as to, as to why, but not anything definitive that I know of. Um, but because he was uh, not rich uh, and certainly not noble or landed or titled, but fairly prominent anyway, um, Shakespeare would have attended the local grammar school. One of my, one of the things um, my students always ask are asked when I would teach Shakespeare is like how someone who just went to school until the age of 15 could know all of this stuff about Greek and Roman mythology about various languages and 
um, I would tell them that, you know, grammar school at the time was not something everybody went to, A, and B, it was a very intense curriculum in exactly the things that, that we don't really teach anymore, like the Latin classics, um, uh, mythologies, um, ancient texts and civilizations. So it's very likely that, that the things that are now explained to contemporary students like by the side notes, like all of the references to mythologies are the very things he would have spent his time studying. Um, when he was 18, he got married to a woman who was already pregnant with their first daughter. She was 26. Her name was Anne Hathaway, like the actress. Um, and uh, they were relatively comfortable. Um, and she lived her entire life in Stratford um, that his wife did. And um, uh, this marriage was um, about 1582. And really in between 1582 and 1591 or 92, there's not a lot known about, you know, what Shakespeare did. Um, we do know that he had um, a daughter named Susanna um, and then twins um, named Judith and Hamnet, a boy and a girl. Uh, Hamnet um, died at the age of 11 while Shakespeare was living in London. So that's his early life. Um, and that's that. Fantastic. And uh, just to add one of the few things that I know about Shakespeare, I think it was said in a companion to Ovid that three-fourths of Shakespeare's plays take some material from Ovid's works, whether it be the Metamorphoses or the Amores, or any of his uh, compendious works. And I think that was interesting what you mentioned about the audience and how they would have been well-educated in classical Greek and Roman stories as well as in biblical stories. And so I think one of the interesting um, parts of this project will be to highlight some of those references in order to bring out the richness and the fullness of the Shakespearean um, dialogue. And um, so, so wonderful. And so the next thing I think we were thinking to do was to talk a little bit about the comedy of errors. I was going to give a synopsis from the Folger digital text, but something I might want to ask you all for any students that are learning from home or learning independently like we are, is how you all are, are consuming Shakespeare. Because I know there's a, a very real question about um, uh, how, sh how should you learn this material? Should you watch a play? Should you see it live? Should you listen to it? Should you read it? Should you read it out loud, even if you are reading it? Um, and there are so many options these days. And I, I would like to also just mention on a practical note that I think how I'm doing it is a very strong way to do it, which I'm reading the text on the very well done FolgerDigitalText.org um, with the Audible Archangel um, uh, full cast um, productions alongside each and if somebody has a chance to do it that way I highly recommend it because it, it really helps me get through Shakespeare and understand what it is that I'm uh, I'm listening to so I guess I wanted to ask y'all how are y'all reading this what's your philosophy on how to learn these plays um, and then then we can get into the comedy of errors itself Uh, well, I, I've read these all before, or most of them, um, so I'm rereading them, which I highly recommend. Um, you know, but for a first read, it's, it's really great if you can either see a production, you know, live if possible, or just a recording, or, or listen to an audio version, because then you'll 
hear the emotions at least and hear the pronunciation and, and um, you know, just sort of get a sense of all of what's going on in the actual production, which I think is uh, really hard to get a feel for just reading off the page. But, you know, do your best with that. I think that's a, a really crucial thing to just kind of be conscious of. And, and you know, I just think there's not a wrong way. There's not a wrong way to read and particularly to read great books. And so you, you can't go wrong with any version of Shakespeare. I, I firmly believe any Shakespeare is better than no Shakespeare. And what, what do you think, Sarah? Well, I would, I would echo what you just said there, Wes, of and any Shakespeare is better than none. Um, having taught a lot of these before um, to um, uh, kids who had varying levels of interest, um, to say the least, I think, uh, I think that it's helpful to keep in mind that they were not meant to be read like cover to cover, they were meant to be experienced visually and um, audibly, right? Um, these, just the way the plays were written at all, they were written in parts. So, um, and this is this is nicely uh, presented, even if it's fictionalized in the movie Shakespeare in Love, where actors received their lines and their cues. They did not receive a full script, right? Um, and so. Um, when, when Shakespeare died, uh, it was a, a matter of collecting parts and fusing them together using the clues of each line cue um, to put them together into the first folio. And, um, uh, you know, prior to that, there had been previous publications of plays, but, you know, this was before the printing press was something I mean I guess the printing press had been invented but this was before people could like buy books this is not that was like that's an invention or a evolution um of the you know the enlightenment and the post-enlightenment and the industrial revolution like people didn't have money to sit around and like buy a paperback but they they did have a penny to go get entertained in three hours at the play so I think if you can watch then that's probably the best way to consume it. But I would also say that just to keep in mind that if you are watching, for our listeners at home, if you're watching a version of the play, um, just remember that it's directed as well. And all of the actors and the director make choices, right? So um, one version of a play, though staged, is not the only way to do it. And I think um, uh, having taught some of these plays before, not comedy of errors, but uh, a number of them, it's really helpful to think about as you would read um, or, or watch, why stage that way? Like what are the cues in the text that indicate staging? Um, and, and like where, think about the opportunities for for humor, um, think about particularly in a comedy, but paying attention to like the staging pieces that are embedded in the play and like how you might imagine it being staged um, or um, if you're watching it already being staged, what choices are the director and the actors making? Because that's an act of interpretation and it very much puts a spin on the play. So um, all that is just to say that like even even 
an audio book, like that's one version of the play. Um, but uh, it's, it's, I think it's, a, it's better than sitting down and just reading it without the audio or the visual or both, but it is, it is also an interpretive act to put it on in the first place. That's wonderful. And that I was definitely going to ask you about the folios and the quartos and how the work was originally transmitted and given uh, from the director or the writer Shakespeare, who's often an actor too, from what I understand, and had to work his way up in the theater community. Um, and how, how the, the works have been preserved from quartos into folios into more quartos into more folios. I, I, I can't recall, I think there were something like five or six folios at this point. I know Folger Digital Text knows and actually presents those materials as well as uh, famous pictures from the material as well as um, a good and accurate um, transmission of the plays themselves. But I just wanted to ask you very quickly and then actually get into the comedy of errors, but just I know this background is very important about um, what do you think that means for the authenticity of what it is we're reading? The fact that all of it has had to be pieced together. It makes me think about the so-called Homer merit question and what we have received. Have we received the work of many different hands or of just one person, as well as even sort of like the biblical and even Catholic sort of understanding of the faith, which seems to be, you know, the converse, you know, the conversation around something or the, the so-called body of faith rather than just the text themselves and how that relates to the Shakespearean question and what it is that we're actually um, looking at when we when we read Shakespeare. That's a very very interesting question, and I think that there's some people who take a really, you know, they they are bardolators, right? They idolize Shakespeare as this sort of genius, this godlike, you know, creator, um, which is you know, a, a kind of tradition. Um, there's also plenty of people who like to say, you know, you come to this point in your, maybe your education, your English learning uh, at school, and you say, well, he couldn't have possibly meant like all that stuff that people find in the plays, right? He was just like, no one could possibly like have meant to put all of the stuff that people have later found in these books. There's so much scholarship about them, like every little thing. So I think those are sort of two extremes. Um, I think like in most cases, the truth is probably somewhere in between. And yeah, like people who love these works have poured over them and, and question every little um, punctuation mark. And just like there's, there's tons of scholarship about everything in there. Um, it can be interesting to look at some of that. I don't think it's necessary to enjoy the play. Um, but on the other hand, I mean, there's, there's no sense in dismissing it because other people have had you know, have editors and actors and whoever, you know, has helped to put, put these together, you know, to, to sort of question the identity of Shakespeare, I think just sort of distracts uh, rather than, than adds much to, to understanding his, his work. I, don't know. I agree. And I like that. And I, I was going to say that I bring up that point in order to say that, it, you know, the reason I brought it up is because I had originally thought that this play was called a comedy of errors. Uh, or rather the comedy of errors. And then I saw it reported as a comedy of errors. And now looking at my Bolger digital text, it says the comedy of errors. And it seems as if with a received text, it has to be put together. Maybe those arguments about the small things aren't as important because maybe they're not even arguments about um, realities. And um, 
so something <laughs> I did just want to jokingly ask this very quickly is, uh, is Shakespeare Thomas Kidd or Christopher Marlowe? And just highlight the fact that, um, Sarah, it, it was clearly the case that every one of these playwrights was borrowing from older stories and stories in the air at that time. There's, you know, in a similar way to how Homer synthesized sort of folk tales during his time. It's, uh, it's not like he's playing, it's like he's doing what everybody was doing at that time, right? Sure. I mean, I can't, I'm not familiar with uh, Christopher Marlowe or much of Shakespeare's contemporaries in terms of like their, their, the content of their plays. I think I had to read one Marlowe play in college or something like that. But, you know, um, few of, Shakespeare, of Shakespeare's plays are original storylines. I mean, I can think of, like, I know Midsummer Night's Dream is an original storyline. Um, I'm, I, I'm fairly certain the Tempest is, but you know, I, I don't know every single one of them, like what their original source material is, but like, for example, Romeo and Juliet is not an original story. Like that is, um, you know, the, the star-crossed lovers is um, taken from, I mean, there's Pyramus and Thisbe, which, you know, um, satirized in Midsummer. There's uh, Tristan and Isolde. Um, uh, I think to the to your earlier question um, about source material, or to your question about source material, I think it it might be worth just kind of returning to Wes's answer about like um, about the question of biography, right? Like I think it's really valuable to study Shakespeare's time and like what his audience would have expected and known. I think it's really interesting, especially once he becomes more and more. Um, popular, famous, and 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 especially financially successful, and and kind of in with the the um, queens and the kings, is to look at like how does the commissioner of a piece, how does what we know of say J King James, um, how does that help us kind of unlock some of what's happening in the play of Macbeth, right? Um, but um, these plays are are works of of I think they're works of genius, whether or not we can say with 100% certainty that, that, you know, this word, every single word was chosen by this guy. And that, you know, we have kind of have no way of knowing if some pieces have been lost. I think definitely the, the Folger editions acknowledge when a text has been corrupted um, or when a scene is in one collection but not in another collection and thought to have been written after Shakespeare etc that happens in Macbeth but you know like um I think we can all agree that like Romeo and Juliet tells an unoriginal story in a really remarkable poetically persuasive um elevated masterful fashion right in a way that like elicits emotion that like does something new with character that uses language in like a, a gene in, in a way that's genius. So like, so it's a, so it's a story that he crips, right? Like how many movies are there out there that are really that original? Not many. Right. Um, anyway, that's, that's my two cents on it is I, I think that the, it's, it's the, it's the way the stories are told like linguistically and also in terms of structure and format, like how he uses scenes and acts um uh to tell a story and like what he does with character 
that's so revolutionary that like it's it's genius it's it's beyond what anybody else was doing that that that's worth you know studying regardless of who you know personally what does that make sense oh, perfect perfect sense and, and it just makes me think that a, a fun homework assignment for this next time might be for us each to find speeches and other great works that we think could stand alongside Shakespeare or even offer themselves as models to Shakespeare because it, it seems like what he does is his characters give great speeches in ordinary moments, giving uh, giving rise to realities that we take for granted but are certainly present. And when they're articulated, they're made beautiful or their beauty is illuminated. And so I, I think it's very interesting that what you say makes him a master is very similar to what would make Homer and Virgil masters. Not that he comes up with the original most innovative story ever. Uh, and I think that is a criticism of him that he doesn't care as much about the plot as he as he does about the poetry that he, in fact, there was a famous claim made about him that I wonder whether it's true, which is that he, he would have been a poet, but was forced to be a dramatist. Um, and so what, but what makes him truly great is how he changes that which he's given, how he makes more of what is already there, not, uh, not creating something simply original. And I guess that also um, brings up the question of what true originality actually is. Um, but, uh, I, and I hope that music in the background wasn't terrible, but, uh, you know, there's public music out in front of where I live. So, um, should we, uh, having laid out, having laid out so many questions to start with, uh, about, about the scholarship itself, the Shakespearean tradition, the direction that we're going and how we want to do this and, uh, the, the question of his originality. Shall we get on to the comedy of errors itself? I can provide a synopsis and then we can perhaps go through some of the themes that Wes threw out there and um, maybe also consider some of the quotes that we, uh, that we took, that we transcribed in preparation for this. Yeah, do you wanna give the, a little quick summary? Yes, so this is from FolgerDigitalText.org, and I, I think the synopsis and all the synopses I've seen the last 15 days or so of Shakespeare uh, have been fantastic. So here is the Comedy of Errors. Set in the city of Ephesus is on FolgerDigitalText.org. The Comedy of Errors concerns the farcical misadventures of two sets of identical twins. Many years earlier, the Syracusan merchant Egeon had twin sons, both named Antiphilus for some reason. At their birth, he bought another pair of newborn twins, both named Dromeo, as their servants. In a shipwreck, Egeon lost his wife, one of his sons, and one of the Dromeos. Egeon's remaining son, Antiphilus of Syracuse, and his servant, Dromeo of Syracuse, come to Ephesus, where unknown to them, their lost twins now live. The visitors are confused, angered, or intrigued when local residents seem to know them. Similarly, Antiphilus and Dromeo of Ephesus run into puzzling reactions from the people they know, who have been dealing unwittingly with the Syracusans. Antiphilus of Ephesus' wife bars him from his house. He is jailed after a jeweler claims he owes money on a gold chain he never received. When the four twins come together, all is finally resolved. In one last twist, their parents reunite as well. And so, having summarized the play, where is it that we would like to start? Um, 
I have your themes up here, Wes, that you had mentioned, um, places, like ends, characters, errors, the chain, transformation, jealousy, time. And then you have quotes from, it looks like each of the accents have been fourth. And um, I, I know that I have some quotes too. Uh, where is it that we would like to start? Do we want to talk about the style of this play, why we call it the first one, how uh, Shakespeare might develop over time? Do we want to talk about the plot itself? Um, where, I mean, I suppose anywhere is the best way to start just in way, the same way that reading is the best thing to do when you need to read. But uh, where would you two like to start? Um, I, I would throw out just one more little contextual piece here. So uh, maybe you mentioned it there, like this is traditionally considered one of the first plays that he wrote, although there's, you know, it's hard to find hard evidence on the chronology. This is definitely like an early play. Um, they think that it was first performed or in any way the, some of the first evidence of it being performed was at a, um, the Christmas revels at Gray's Inn before a riotous audience of learned lawyers, as my editor says in his introduction here. So, you know, like you said, like a, an intelligent, a learned audience, um, but also a riotous audience. I think that's kind of important too. Um, so I think maybe having read that intro was why I sort of picked up on the different names of the inns. They kind of stood out to me. They had like very colorful names and, you know, they would have had like signboards out front that, depicted these creatures. I, I remember the phoenix being one, I think, and the, the tiger maybe. Uh, I forget if there was a third. Um, but the, as far the as... The porpentine. The porpentine, yes. How could I forget the porpentine? Oh uh, yeah, so they're just very colorful, you know, it's sort of, and, and you know, it's like, um, helps you kind of feel the the atmosphere of this this town of Ephesus. There's a lot of kind of magical stuff going on, and that becomes more prominent as the play goes along. And so thinking about this as an early play, it actually connects with a lot of the, the more famous, the more sort of revered plays like A Midsummer Night's Dream, which has that magical element, or like The Tempest, or, or some of those late romances, you know, that have a, a very strong kind of um, quasi-divine uh, sort of deus ex machina kind of ending to them. And we see that adumbrated at the end of this one a little bit with, with the way that it all sort of comes together very nicely for them. Um, but it is, you know, the comedy of errors, right? And so that's another theme that I thought was kind of interesting was the different kinds of errors and in what sense they they err, you know, they wander, they mess up, they make mistakes or even sin, if you like. There's a lot of sort of levels of that word that we could go with. The other thing I think was kind of cool, you got the chain uh, that you mentioned that one of the, uh, the twins has made for his wife, ends up deciding he's going to give it to his mistress instead, a courtesan who's going to meet at one of these inns. Um, and that chain, you know, has all sorts of different resonances to it, but it's that which binds people. And, and that theme plays out with a kind of little love motif, with some jealousy, which are, again, you know, some of those huge Shakespearean obsessions right that, that get developed in the later plays and along with that i just thought that there was quite a bit going on with um with time it's it's conspicuous i don't know quite what to make of it um but uh it it is it's like you can see a lot of what will make shakespeare great and i think this is a great play you know it's very entertaining 
but it's it's simpler than a lot of the later ones. It's all sort of there in in potential, so to speak. I agree. Um, uh, some uh, just a couple first notes I would make about the play is that it has a very drab, generalized name: the comedy of errors. That could be spruced up quite a bit. It reminds me quite a bit, actually, of the first paragraph about. Bilbo in The Hobbit, describing him as a hobbit rather than and getting more specific um, from there. So, so, and you know, as you said, the conceit in the plot is a very simplistic plot that relies on, that relies frankly on a, a fairly unbelievable idea, which is that um, twins would have the same name and then would have servants with the same name bought uh, for them or employed for them. Um, I also agree that there are elements of future, uh, more original plays in, in this uh, play. I'm looking for, through my quotes for uh, a real um, sort of uh, a touch of Shakespeare, as we know, like the Shakespeare Hamlet, but also just through, again, the magic, because there are two ways to look at this play um, through the eyes of the Syracusans, who must think that this is sort of a magical fairyland where they're being treated as if they're they're well known, even though they're obviously not known. And I really want to talk about that. And and you know, we with understanding dramatic irony on the outside of this play, sort of it all makes perfect sense to us. But imagine the experience of being Antipholus of Syracuse and people knowing your name and being invited into into an angry wife's dinner. Um, very interesting. But I I, I agree that um, you still see that the plot is. Uh, to some extent, unbelievable and simplistic, and that stylistically it makes sense to start with this um, this um, less mature work of Shakespeare. What What are some of your first notes on the work itself, Sarah? Well, um, I think if I were to write an opening question for a discussion on the play. I think my question might up on that theme of errors um, uh, that you pointed out, Wes, the, the layers of error, um, because I think it's easy to assume that the comedy is only in the, um, like the mistaking, right? Um, but there are other, like more profound errors happening in the play. Um, uh, both both uh, center stage and kind of off to the side. Um, and the other thing that I would, um, that, that you brought up, Alex, is that it does seem fairly ridiculous or silly. So I guess uh, that, that, or that these two sons would be named the same thing um, and that they would, they would have slaves that are named the same thing. Uh, it just, it all does seem quite far-fetched. So I think my question would be like, where's the comedy in this? Um, and maybe a, a sub part is like, why are people fooled by the Syracusean and uh, Antiphilus and Dromeo? Like what? Um, and I, you know, the, the dramaturg in me wonders like, what would you have to do to make this believable on stage? Um, what kind of costuming and vocal changes and you know um, I, I, I think that those those would be the things that stood out to me I think one thing that knowing that we're going to read Taming of the Shrew next I thought the conversations between the two sisters were really interesting about like what 
wives and marriage must do or must not do. Um, uh, knowing that those two are among some of his earlier works, um, uh, Shakespeare is, you were right, Alex, uh, acting in London as well as writing. I don't think at this point he's very commercially successful if we're towards the early part of his career. And if this is being performed in an inn, this is not the globe. Um, and um, yeah, I think like, why is marriage an intriguing theme for him? Or like, what what is he saying about marriage? The other thing that I, that I noted here is like, uh, alongside the idea of chains and bonds, like there's a lot about slavery or like enslavement. I, I did not get the vibe that Dromeo was just a servant. Um, I got the, just cause they do use the word slave quite a bit. Um, and that doesn't really seem like an error though, <laughs> no pun intended. It might be worth um, like looking into what, um, what that what the word slave meant in 1592 um and if it meant the same thing as it means in 1992 or something like that if we're if we're legit like if we're what this what this means um that's by the way side note that's a really valuable collection of books to have is like a um when you're reading shakespeare is a uh like a it's not quite an Oxford English dictionary, but it's just like a a dictionary of how the words get used in his plays, uh, sort of a, um, an author-specific uh, lexicon, I suppose. Um, I have them at work. I, I'll bring them home and use them here, just FYI. Those are the things that, that stood out to me. Um, and then the final thing that I would add is... Um, uh in what way is this play about um like masks or plays in general um like recognition um to be to have something be both magical and real to have it be both unbelievable and believable to have it be um to have a circumstance be uh both uh highly comedic but also if it was your life highly not comedic um uh i know i thought there was some meta stuff happening maybe it's too early in his career for that but um I, there were a couple passages where it seemed like this this was about the idea of like um people playing parts um but that that was just me that was my general impression well that's fantastic i think you, you get the job of coming up with open-ended questions, which is excellent. Every single one of them that you were thinking of, that just makes me want to pass the buck to Wes a little bit with maybe one caveat, which is, what is it about errors that is funny? And what are the layers of errors in this seemingly simple uh, play? And are those errors extended through the, the the fourth wall, as Sarah was saying, out towards us. And I am very eager to get into the discussion of what is happening when one is looking at a play in the same way that we've had that discussion about what is fantasy literature before. I, I can't wait for that. But um, um, also, my, my addendum for you, uh, 
Wes, if I can recall hearing this very boisterous music outside, is um, well, no, I think I, I think I essentially got it. Um, what um, what are the layers of error here? Oh, oh yeah, I was going to make a connection to Dante and how does Shakespeare's idea here of comedy seem to differ from Dante's? Just because you and I have had the opportunity to talk so much about Dante, and I feel like what what defines a comedy for Shakespeare is a bit different from how uh, Dante does it. Um, I'll have to think about the Dante thing. I was I was gonna turn us to the text where um, we see some of maybe what is going on with the initial error or the kind of um, the underlying error that we all want to go along with when we go and watch a play, right? About sort of people being somebody else at the same time. Um, and I think it, one interesting line early in the play that touches on this is uh, act one, scene two, after Antiphilus of Syracuse has sent his servant, Dromeo of Syracuse off, um, he bids farewell to the merchant who's talking to. And then so around line, uh, around line 30 or so, um, the merchant is saying, um, um, you know, uh, my present business calls me from you now. And Antiphilus replies, farewell till then, I will go lose myself and wander up and down to view the city. Merchant, sir, I commend you to your own content. And then this is the lines I really wanted to look at. So this is the first time we have, a, I think, a character on stage by themselves saying stuff out loud, which Bloom, whatever else he says, he does a good job of pointing out these as very important in Shakespeare. Moments when characters overhear themselves thinking out loud, or, or we hear what they are sort of truly thinking, right? But they're acting, okay? So he says, he that commends me to mine own content commends me to the thing I cannot get. I to the world am like a drop of water that in the ocean seeks another drop, who falling there to find his fellow forth unseen, inquisitive, confounds himself. So I to find a mother and a brother in quest of them unhappy, lose myself. And now we have the first, like, you know, obvious error. Is Dromeo, but it's of Ephesus, the other Dromeo. Here comes the almanac of my true date. How now? How chance that thou art returned so soon? So it's obviously not the right one, right? It's like, it's very clear. And, but underlying that is the fact that he doesn't really know who he is, right? He's going to lose himself. He's intentionally wandering. You know, he's looking for his brother, but really he doesn't, he doesn't know himself. And that is the universal error, right, of, of all people. We, we don't really know who we are. We're all sort of playing parts, right? And he says that explicitly in later plays, like we're, we're playing. Um, that's the Hamlet thing, right? Like, is he or isn't he really mad? You know, but that's a universal issue. And so I, I really like the imagery of water here, though. And that is something that I think comes up a lot in this play as well. And it has that kind of protean quality to it of, of not being fixed of, um, in, in particular, being universally the same and yet um, sort of intermingled and impossible to, to sift out, you know? Um, so th there's just a lot there. I don't know. What do you guys see in those, those lines, particularly those that he speaks once he's alone on stage? Well, I definitely agree. I mean, yeah, go on, Sarah. I was just gonna say, you are definitely right to point us to the first Soliloquy. I mean, that's what this is, right? And and yeah, soliloquies are um, 
super important for Shakespeare, um, a window into the mind, sometimes even into the to the heart or the soul of a character. Um, I think um, um, this also brings up something that I thought was interesting about as we were as as read as I was reading the play, it was I I wondered like do either do any of the four know that they are being mistook for someone with the like do they do they know and are trying to benefit from it because later in the play Antipholus or and Romeo of Syracuse both acknowledge that like Ephesus is pretty great like we seem to get anything that we want here maybe it's magic whatever um but and then eventually they want to go because you know Antipholus feels like he's being bewitched by these women and Dromeo's afraid of the kitchen wench um <laughs> but <laughs> but like it was particularly I think in act three scene one where I wondered if Dromeo of Syracuse knew that he was being mistook for Dromeo of Ephesus when he was barring the door and like I can easily see it staged that way that like one of the Dromeos knows what's up right because oh, here definitely. we get this line from Antipholus that like he's he says he's on, he's on a quest to find a mother and a brother right so he's not here like out of the clear blue sky right so no yeah Right. That, so then again, like, so why is he so, so slow to pick up knowing that he has a twin? Right. It's like, it seems like a plot hole, but that's what makes me think it was like kind of on the meta side, because later in this scene, act one, scene two, when he's again alone on stage, he muses about why. Dromeo of Ephesus is not what he expected of his Dromeo, right? And he says, at the end of the scene, he says, upon my life, by some device or other, the villain is overwrought of all my money. Like, where, where'd my money go? And this is what I thought was important. They say this town is full of cousinage, as nimble jugglers that deceive the eye, dark working sorcerers that change the mind, soul-killing witches that deform the body, disguised cheaters, tracing mountebanks, and many such-like liberties of sin. If it be so, I will be gone the sooner. All to the centaur to go seek this slave. I greatly fear my money is not safe. Um, and it, it struck me as like a passage about the theater because it has some elements of what the theater was accused of being in many times in Shakespeare's life, right? a place of sorcery, a place mm -hmm. of yes. deception, a, a place of, of libertines, um, of, of, you know, pleasure-seeking sinners who are going to take us all to hell. Um, <coughs> and it's like, right. <laughs> it's like, um, it's like Ephesus is the theater. And is, is your money safe there? Uh, is it a safe place to go looking for your, for what you, what you want to find? Uh, if he's looking for his brother and his mother and finding himself lost, is that because he's looking in the wrong place? Is he going to find something just not in the way he thought he was going to find it, right? Or is 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 any kind of discovery going to require 
deep amounts of confusion followed by like sadness and decision and 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 maybe even suffering right um is that isn't that kind of what plays are are meant to do like take you on a circuitous route through through things maybe those maybe this route trans like traverses some places of sin right um some like you know tartaruses but maybe that's how you how you discover some stuff um and I don't know that that this is exactly the scene where I got the the meta vibe um so I'm curious what I, I cut you off Alex so what 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 do you think well just a couple connections I definitely see in that first soliloquy with the the questioning of himself and his happiness and having the content being that precisely which he cannot find a prefiguration of Hamlet that will come later on, that sort of self-questioning character, that character that finds itself in a play, but with the universal intellect, questions why his own teleology and why it is he must act in, why is he, he constrained by fate in the way he is? And ultimately, I think that is the universal human question that you as a reasoning creature with infinite thinking capacity find yourself bound in certain situations in which you have to play a part and even though you can uh, question the nature of that, you still have to play that part. And I think that I think there's a prefiguration of that as early as the you know that second scene in ostensibly his first play or one of his very first plays. I, I also agree with you, Sarah, about that magical element. Also agreeing back with uh, um, Wes that there's there's that sort of a prefiguration of. The, uh, both a Midsummer Night's Dream and Macbeth, and just that which is uh, rolling through England at that time. It's a very interesting sort of place that has elf myths and myths about magic. You see this in like sort of the poetry and even collections of Yeats later on. And I even have a work on um, how when Christianity was forming around there, it was also forming around uh, a, a sort of folklore subculture of fairies. And um, so, just seeing that there's there are themes here that are going to grow as Shakespeare grows, I think it's very interesting. The the one point I might make about this, I, I keep having Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde sort of pop into my head as we're discussing this now. I, I just wonder, and I, I know probably Shakespeare is not doing this intentionally, but maybe I don't. Uh, are Antipholus and um, Dromeo, do they have the same names as their twins? Because in some way, their twins are supposed to represent something about themselves. Just to continue the question you just asked about um, using the, the the play as a, a vehicle for self-discovery or self-knowledge, the same way that you know we've used fantasy literature in more modern times as vehicles for self-knowledge on major questions uh, that impact our lives. Um, is there some interplay between the Dromeos and the Antiphili <laughs> that makes it, makes it seem as if they're not simply twins, but in some way uh, identities. Uh, they are the same as each other with some important difference. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think it definitely is playing with that concept because of the way, well, this I think is where the, um, the wives come in, right? Um, one of the Antiphilises has gotten married, he's settled down, he's, kind of established himself, right, as a very notable citizen, um, 
very wealthy, all this and that, right? Whereas the other Antiphilus has chosen to continue wandering and looking for his lost brother. Um, he still hasn't lost hope, although he's in quite a bit of danger being a Syracusan in Ephesus at this point. Like we learn in the first scene that that's a dangerous thing right now. They're at war. Um, so he's kind of undercover, right? He's supposed to pretend that he's from a different town is what the merchant tells him. So, so he's, um, they do sort of represent these diverging paths of life, these, these walks that they've chosen um, to go on. And, uh, and I think, you know, the way that he sort of, the, the Syracusan Antiphilus, that is, the way that he sort of gets, you know, wrapped up by the wife of his brother here, I think is, is quite interesting. Like she's very devoted. Um, she's like counseling herself or rather her sister is also counseling her right to, to forgive him for, for straying, um, for not being home at time in time for dinner or whatever, you know, be, be a good wife to him. And so she really goes over the top here in her first big speech. Um, right. Uh, I think it's kind of interesting. I, I won't read a whole, whole thing, but some of it here, this is in, uh, act two, scene two. Uh, Adriana comes in around line 110, right? Um, and she's saying some similar stuff to what we were hearing. Aye, aye, Antiphilus, look strange and frown. Some other mistress hath thy sweet aspects. I am not Adriana, your, nor thy wife. The time was once when thou unurged wouldst vow that never words were music to thine ear, that never object pleasing in thine eye, that never touch well welcome to thy hand, that never meat sweet savored in thy taste, unless I spake or looked or touched or carved to thee how comes it now my husband oh how comes it that thou art then estranged from thyself thyself i call it being strange to me that undividable incorporate am better than thy dear self's better part ah do not tear away thyself from me for know my love as easy mayst thou fall a drop of water in the breaking gulf and take unmingled thence that drop again without addition or diminishing, as take from me thyself and not me too. Right? So he's um, being told here that he is not himself alone, right? He's his brother, A, and B, he's also her. She's part of him. They're, they're, they're wedded, right? And so they're one flesh, right? Um, and so there's this, this sense in which um, she is, you know, making him into the person that she's imagining, right? She knows he's kind of messed up or she thinks she knows because she thinks she knows who he is. Um, but she's, she's forgiving him. She's saying, doesn't matter. We're married, right? Like we are together no matter what. That's, that's our vows. So that's, that's what I take from that. And, um, and it's just so funny in, the, in the, the scheme of things, right? He has been talking about being a drop of water. Um, so she, you know, in some sense must have overheard, quote unquote, uh, that earlier speech and is, is taking that, that image up and, and playing with it here. It's, it's just wonderful. I would also just point out that, you know, at this point in his life, he, when Shakespeare's, I don't, I, I don't want to reduce an interesting thing in a play to, you know, explainable purely through biography, but he is also, he's living separate from his family, right? Um, his wife and his children at the time, they live in Stratford, they never leave. Um, and he, you know, in order to be an actor, you don't, you don't hang out in Stratford, you go to London. Um, and 
I'm sure that there's scholarship about, you know, the state of their marriage and there's certainly speculation about his fidelity, but, um, you know, that idea of being anchored somewhere, but also seeking to wander. Um, I mean, I'm sure that that's, that's something he experienced both physically, uh, in terms of place, but also like, um, uh, it's hard not to imagine like small town, big city, um, comfortable with where you are, but aspiring, like, and that's, I feel like that's one of the, 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 in like hallmarks of ambition is, um, seeking to wander, to find something. I, I think it's interesting then that, that the Antipolis of Ephesus is unfaithful. Like he's wandering, um, uh, even though he has this, he's wandering in a different way, right? He's seeking something else. He's not seeking a, a brother and a, a mother or, you know, seeking for his fellow drop in the ocean, but he's seeking like sexual pleasure from someone who's not his wife. Um, but I think, I mean, I think the difference between the Antipolis who wanders um, from Syracuse and how he falls in love with what seems like the more, um, like, for lack of a better term, the, the more modern Luciana, like, he seems to really like this this woman, the woman who who even admits, like, I won't obey. I can't be married just yet, right? Like, and, and, and when... And when uh, the 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 prioress, the woman, the the nun at the end is like basically blaming uh, his wife Adriana for for his his <laughs> cheating, right? Um, and, and like Luciana's like, are you just gonna like, are you just gonna take that? Like, I think it's interesting. Who I think it I think it says something about each man which woman they are tied to or which, which women they are tied to, you know, um, it might, and, and if it is the case that they are twin sides of one man, shall we say, then I think it, I think that's even more interesting because it indicates like potentialities in, in all those directions, I guess. I definitely want to consider that a little more and just, but just one additional question I have, because I think it's so interesting that Wes, you laid out that the the um, Antipolis of Syracuse is a wanderer, whereas the Antipolis of Ephesus is a settler, and their lives on the face of it look very different from each other. But then Sarah, you brought up the sort of, uh, new, you added the nuance that the settled Antipolis is actually finding themselves wandering here in Ephesus too. Which brings me to the original soliloquy about Antipholus. If we consider these Antipholi as identified with each other as the same person or housing the same nature to the highest representative extent that Shakespeare possibly could do it, right? They are literally, they have the same name and are twins. So they look the same and are probably represented by the same actor. But that you, you sort of brought up the point that it seems as if no matter where Antipholus goes, he he might be a wanderer and that um that that question is not just the question of antipholus of syracuse but also of of um the ephesian one as well and so that just makes me wonder 
a sort of interesting question. Uh, um, a comment that Bloom makes is that when the antiphili, the two antiphilises meet each other, they're sort of dissatisfied with each other. Whereas the dromeos seem to be very much congenial. And that makes me wonder whether what the antiphili see in each other is themselves a reflection. And what that is, is their mutual dissatisfaction with their own existences. Whereas Dromeo, who is lower in social class, and a comment that I've learned recently from some of the scholarship on Shakespeare is that one of his victories in comedies is the mixing and intermingling of social classes, is that Dromeo actually finds himself to like himself more, or to like what he is, or to see what he is through the course of this play, and to appreciate it, regardless of his lower status and possibly even being enslaved. And I would say probably enslaved just because of when this is set. It seems to be set in sort of an ancient Greece or, or sort of Hellenistic Greece, at late, latest like Roman Greece, uh, when there would have been slaves. Um, but yeah, that's just what I was wondering, uh, in addition to your question about the relationships and what that says about each character. Yeah, I mean, I don't remember the two Antiphilus is really having that much to say to one another, but it does, I mean, it is interesting that Dromeo sort of gets the last word, the, the two Dromeos do end the play, um, which is kind of, you know, as, as these plays go, you, you want to sort of end on like a, a strong, you know, thing that's going to get the applause of the crowd. So my sense is that the crowd also likes the Dromeos better than the Antiphilus is. Um, they're they're much more sympathetic in some ways uh and just maybe a little more i don't know relatable or something um but at the same time there's this sense that they um the two antiphiluses are uh, are just like just like their their servants right that that sense that they're they're both in the same predicament um they're just sort of getting to uh, enjoy it or suffer it in, in slightly different ways. I mean, I think that itself is an evidence of, of that kind of mixing that you're talking about of social classes, right? They're um, equally subject to this bizarre <laughs> conceit of the play. Um, and well, yeah, they, they fall uh, in love with, with women of different status, perhaps, uh, or rather, they try to avoid women of different status, but um, but they're both avoiding a woman, right? Um, and in the one in Tiflis is uh, desiring a different woman, right? So there's there's sort of these again these like universal these human universals that come through uh, in, a, in a a really entertaining, but also like you know there's a, there's a lot of, of pathos there, um, particularly. <laughs> If you were to see this performed, I mean, it's horrifying how much Dromeo gets beaten throughout the play. It's it's rough and you know, <laughs> it's, it's comical. It's comical at the same time as it's like, yeah, it's awful. Um, th that's again, I think another angle on that question of like, what's what's funny about Shakespeare's comedies? What's funny about this comedy? Like, what does that say about us that we laugh at this stuff and derive great pleasure from seeing it? I don't know. <laughs> well. Do we want to perhaps conclude this first episode on this first play with those Dromeo's um, dialogue? I have it open here. I think it's 5 1 4 14 to 26. And um, then we can just go from there.
Sure. So, there is a fat friend at your master's house that kitchened me for you today at dinner. She now shall be my sister, not my wife. Methinks you are my glass and not my brother. I see by you I am a sweet face to you. Will you walk in to see their gossiping? Not I, sir. You are my elder. That's a question. How shall we try it? We'll draw cuts for the senior. Till then, lead thou first. Nay then, thus. We came into the world like brother and brother. Now, let's go hand in hand, not one before another. Yeah, there's something um, about it uh, that it's almost like this is something this is something I noticed um, when I was working with um, some students on Twelfth Night this past um, this past spring, but um, it's almost like they're they're finishing each other's lines, right? Um, like if I, I I didn't I haven't scanned this all, but um, and it's certainly not in rhyming iambic pentameter, but um, it does end in a in a couplet. And um, they seem to fall in with one another. I, there's one, one thing, I don't know if this comes from Harold Bloom or if this is just a sense that I have from, you know, some other place, but there's something really like democratic about what ends up becoming Shakespeare's theater. Um, people of various classes being brought together as characters in plays, but also, um, people of various classes watching the same thing together is democratizing. Um, but um, there's no question that like Dromeo getting beat up is like low brow comedy, right? Um, that's like that's like why Jackass is funny, um, or why people watch that like what could go wrong subreddit on Reddit because it's just watching people like fall on their face, and that's funny. Right, but um, uh, I think it's interesting that it ends with the two low-class people seemingly getting a lot out of this ex uh, out of their suffering. I don't know. Um, I don't know. What do you guys think about the way it ends? I, I do see that sort of. Were you satisfied? Yeah, I, yeah, I definitely hear your perspective on this. West, but I, I do see sort of a what would in the future be called a Hegelian element here that it is the slave that becomes the master and that the slave seems to get the last word here and the slave or the servant seems to uh, be more satisfied with his lot that may also be you know very much a sort of a Christian idea too you know I will serve but yeah, what what do you think about the end here? Yeah. Do you find it satisfying? How why does it end in this way? Do you see the democrat the democratizing element as well, Wes? Well, it's just like they're so polite to one another, also. And I mean, there's a mocking element to it. I think, like you know, you go for no after you, right? But um, but it's also like it's a very sort of lost art. I think just like simple civility, right? yeah. <laughs> which. Uh, which is kind of cute um, to, to, to get that to be sort of the last thing that we see out of this whole play, which was like, you know, launched from a, a really, like a lot of these plays are, like a really bizarre conceit that we're asked to just sort of accept. Um, and 
then to to end on this note of sort of back to reality, like as things are supposed to work, not unchanged from the start, but like a, a sort of new stability is 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 brought in here and established. Um, we we sort of like know how things are supposed to go, and if there are um, any divergences from that, then then they're they're sort of safe ones, you know. Um, that that's sort of the way that I I see this ending here. Like they are they are at home. They're at peace. They're not like worried that something weird is about to happen again. Um, and <laughs> and they um, yeah, hand in hand, I think is just a, a very nice kind of uh, pun, if you like, on you know the the give giving a hand, right? Like applauding again which he'll ask for more explicitly at the end of lots of plays. But I could see, you know, the actor yeah. like bringing his hands together and like cueing the audience to, to just like clap and, and have a great time. You know, it's, it's just very, um, very satisfying this ending to me. Yeah. That Even the courtesan gets her diamond back. I mean, come on. You know, and that's, that's interesting because it makes me think about the theory of drama and the stage and what we, you know, like Aristotle's definition versus Nietzsche's definition, we go there to do, do we go there to you know, let out our emotions? Or are we going out there, you know, to express pure being? I don't know. But um, it, it makes me think that part of what a comedy does is it brings you together with your fellow man by means of sort of laughing at the people in front of you by uh, experiencing their mistakes, their errors. And in so seeing their errors, you recognize, or you can, you can go two ways. You can either recognize your own error-filled way and know that all the people around you are just like that and laugh at yourselves. Or you can just sort of pinpoint those fools on the stage and say, look at those people that didn't know what to do. Isn't that funny? But I think that's sort of the more superficial layer. And that makes me think that what a tragedy does is it brings you closer to those next to you and that you're you're either grateful that that wasn't you or you recognize that it was you in some respect or it could have been. And so very interesting. Um, I suppose that, that is what I'm feeling. I am feeling that sense of brotherly love at the end of this. So I guess to answer your question, Sarah, that I tried to drop off on Wes is I do feel satisfied by the ending, far more by the ending than by the beginning. And we will have some problematic beginnings coming up with this teaming that's true, very odd, play within a play that's never returned to. So, uh, uh, taming of the shoe for next time. Taming of the shoe for next time and uh, a little more historical background. Maybe some, you were saying, Sarah, we might talk a little bit about the Elizabethan uh, stage and maybe we can contrast that with the Jacobin yeah. one. I'm going to talk a little bit about, about uh, his time in London and what, the, the, what that time was like what London was like, I think is worth knowing. Um, certainly in 1590 to 1613 when he was there was a time of great, great upheaval and change, rapid change in in England. Um, so uh, yeah, for sure. I'll give a little bit more and uh, taming for next time. Um, I will probably watch 10 Things I Hate About You as well, but um, Mostly because I have a really hard time with Taming of the Shrew. So um, uh, th this will be a difficult one for me to like abandon some preconceptions. Um, just kind of knowing knowing what I, 
I know about the language at the end. So. Well, I can watch that movie as well, and I'm looking forward to that. And yeah, I had a very different reaction to reading it this time around than last time, so or from last time. And so, uh, I, as with all these plays, I'm looking forward to doing these with y'all. Um, well, curtains closed then. <laughs> Bravo. Give me your hands, wavy friends. Applause, applause. Yeah. Yeah. Jazz hands, you can't see them, but I'm doing jazz hands. All right, and so part of, part of some of my secret idea for this is that it will help students, anybody who wants to read Shakespeare in any direction, in any order, with any theme. So hopefully we can do all of these, and then if people like them, they can do their own small courses. They can just do the tragedies or the errors or the problem plays or you know the lesser histories or something like that. And well, that'll be great. Excelsior. All right, sounds good. All right, take it easy. You too. See ya.